Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, October 31st, 2020, and this is the weekly market update. First things first, want to get through the disclaimer. Content in this video is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. All content in this video is information of a general nature and does not address the circumstances of any particular individual or entity. Nothing in the video constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the video constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto. Basically is your money, so does your responsibility. So, this week's reality check, I wanted to kind of talk about my investment philosophy again. And the reason why is I got an email uh, from a guy and he's like, he was kind of disappointed, I think, in the in returns that we're seeing in the newsletter. And they are choppy and they are, you know, all the portfolio items are not moving together. He basically called it a train wreck. So let me just say what I do in this newsletter of mine and what my philosophy is. Basically, I consider myself a contrarian investor. Um, I do not buy things that are fashionable or the current zeitgeist. So I'm not going to be buying Shopify and Apple and Google and Amazon and all these other uh stocks that are currently moving. Um, and the reason why is because I believe they're overvalued. I don't buy overvaluation. I buy undervaluation. And so I want to buy assets that are undervalued and that have some type of catalyst that will cause a change in the market's perception towards that asset and result in a revaluation. Now, the problem with this is, is that in many cases or most cases, the stocks that I'm buying are down for a reason. A lot, we're currently looking at a lot of resource type stocks. They're down massively. Some of them are down 90% since their highs because we've been in a resource bear market for almost a decade. So conversely, the stocks are not going to be performing very well. There's not a lot of interest in them. Commodities are out of favor. Resources are out of favor. Now, I've articulated why I think that's going to change and why this decade's going to be different. But part of the problem with this investment philosophy is that you never really catch the exact bottom. And so you can bounce along the bottom for a while. You have an idea, for example, uranium. Um, we've talked about the supply-demand fundamentals. I'm just using this as an example to, for illustrative purposes. So everybody knows the supply-demand fundamentals but you don't know when the rest of the market's going to figure it out or when it's going to become relevant or when it's going to attract capital and get revalued. It will at some point, but I don't know when that's going to be. And so it goes down to my fourth bullet point here. The changes in sediment take longer than you can imagine or you think are going to happen. And so this is hard for a lot of people. They can, like I've said before, they can, understand the 
argument that you're making for why, for example, uh, uranium is undervalued. They can understand, follow the argument. They can agree with it. However, they cannot, many people, most people cannot just sit there and do nothing. They can't just sit there and wait for the fundamentals to assert themselves. If it takes a year, two years, it could take three to five years. Most people cannot do it. They will not do it for various reasons. Um, they see other sectors going up. So they're like, why am I, they feel like there's an opportunity cost. Um, so they're constantly chasing the shiny object. That's one of the main reasons investors aren't successful. They don't have patience. They don't really know how to analyze businesses. Um, and it's boring. You know, Wall Street is based on a couple of things, you know, assets under management so they can cream fees off. That's why they like a lot of these funds. You just put 288 a payday in and your employer matches it up to 5%, 100%, and you just sit back and you don't have to do anything. It's on autopilot, right? And they just gather, like with a big net, gather assets and then just cream off management fees. They could care less if you make money. That's the business they're in. And then you have, you know, people that are, you know, um, speculating and, you know, they want to buy whatever's going up and that's pure speculation. That's, that can be done successfully, but not, you know, that's trading. Not very many people are good at it. Or some people can go on a heater for a while and be successful. I talked to people that, you know, have gotten involved with options trading. And I did that originally when I first started messing around in the markets when I was, you know, 15 or 16. This is when you still had to trade over the phone and put orders in. And the commissions were very high. And the worst thing that could have happened to me is what happened. I had early success. I've talked about this before in previous videos, but it's worth revisiting. You know, I got a book on point and figure technical analysis. And uh, it actually, I remember, I wish I could remember the name of the book because I'd like to get it again and review it. But it would show the different setups, like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with point and figure charting, but it would show the different setups and like a double bottom, a triple bottom, a breakout, all these things with these X's and O's. And it would ascribe percentages of, if you saw this setup, what the percentage was that would be successful. So I thought, oh, wow, I could just sit here. And I was doing this by hand. This was before, you know, stock charts. There was no computers that did this. You would get the newspaper from the previous days or the Wall Street Journal or whatever. I'd go to the library on the way home from school or whatever. And I had this notebook, graph paper, and I would meticulously be entering the high and lows every day and seeing if I got, you know, changes in these things. So um, I was paper trading, if you will. So I must have just caught it by luck in a market that was going up just by chance. And so I thought to myself, wow, this, this really works. I can, I can do something here. So I started putting, I, I lied. I, I took my lawnmower money. I had a few grand. I was able to open up a brokerage account. I lied about my age and everything. I put everything in there and then I'd call the orders and I had to, you know, figure out how to do that. I'll be buying one or two option contracts at a time. And I, and I started making money and I actually started doing very well for about six months. That was probably, I mean, I don't know the exact time frame now because it was 40 years ago, but I do recall that uh, I was like, this is really easy. I'm going to be a millionaire. And a lot of people make this mistake. They start 
playing in the markets during a run in the markets when the market's going up and then they subscribe the luck that they encounter is skill. And that's the worst thing that can happen. The best thing that could have happened is I would have lost all my money right off the bat and it would have forced me to go back and reevaluate, but I didn't. Subsequent to that, after I had my run up, I did lose a lot of my money because of inevitably these systems don't work. And um, I was taught a very good lesson. And I still bounced around for probably messing around, get rich quick and trying to buy penny stocks and different things like that. Instead of like trying to evaluate, you know, what successful people that are in the markets do. And what I've said before, the common denominator is buying assets that for less than they are actually worth, which is a lot. And then sitting there and waiting or identifying the catalyst that's going to cause a potential revaluation and then waiting for that to happen. That's really hard. Now, I'm kind of fine-tuning my methodology. I think we can introduce some technical analysis to that and uh, some other things. But in the end, you know, um, it requires patience. And this patience cannot be based on just blind fanaticism and ego that I think I'm right. The patience has to be based on conviction. And the conviction comes from your process. And the process is of, you know, doing your research, writing it down, um, going over it. For example, the uranium cycle or the uranium uh, potential that we have. It's inevitable, unless the price goes up, that the price is going to have to go up or inevitably we're going to run out of, you know, easily accessible uranium. There's plenty of uranium in the ground, but it's not worth anybody in a, with a reactor unless somebody goes, finds a economical deposit, permits it, builds a mine, and begins mining it. And no one's going to do that unless they're incentivized to do that. And that's currently our thesis, right? So what you have to constantly do is reassess whether you're wrong. What is something that would be, make me wrong? where I'd say I have to throw the towel in. Now, this already happened. I'll admit it. This happened with offshore drillers, you know, over the last year. You know, we were doing really good. Oil was coming back late in 2019 into early 2020. Oil was trading about above $60 a barrel. We were starting to see more and more uh, investment decisions being made. Rigs were being taken up. Work was starting to happen. We were recovering from the previous bear market. And then we got the dual whammies of the COVID demand drop coupled with the Saudi and Russian um, oil war. And it just drove prices down. As you remember, they went negative and it just basically plunged a dagger into the heart of the nascent recovery in oil and in the offshore drillers. And now many of them are now bankrupt. We had to sell. You can't just hold and hope it comes back. We took big losses. Now, eventually that will come back at some point after these companies transition through their bankruptcy. The bondholders will now own the businesses. Equity holders will be wiped out. And then uh, there'll probably be a nice juicy warrants out there and some other things. And then, you know, these things are cyclical. And so we'll have to wait and see uh, to when that becomes viable again. But you have to know when to, when to uh, get out. You have to know when you're wrong. And, you know, finally, this is hard. This is emotionally taxing, you know, because 
you're waiting, you're not really seeing anything happen. These things do turn, they, they happen pretty quick. And um, it's kind of like that old adage about how one goes bankrupt slowly and then all of a sudden. That's kind of how these things turn. You'll notice what happened in the gold market over the last year. We've done very well with a lot of the precious metals investments we've had, the speculations, just because that's been in an uptrend. And, you know, we were able to take advantage of that. And I think as we go through the various stages of what I think is going to be this, you know, commodity slash resource bull market over the next decade, um, I think we're going to see that happen in the other commodities. And, you know, it's like, you know, I keep talking about oil, but the facts are that, you know, there hasn't been enough investment for a while because of the shale deal. And inevitably, that's going to take a toll because it's an extractive industry. All of these resource markets are extractive industries. You have to replace the production that you take out of the ground or at some point you go out of business. You know, I wanted to show... Whoops, I wanted to show this on a chart I got off Twitter. This is um, some folks that I follow on Twitter. And you'll notice over here, um, this is the global inventory summary builds and draws. And you'll notice, you know, we've been drawing quite a bit on both crude and products, okay? And this is uh, millions of barrels, you know, so... You, the we're working off the inventories and Eric Nuttall's been showing that that inventories were really bulged out well above the five-year average because of the demand drop of COVID but production now has been really curtailed and now we have production going down it's not profitable to bring new fields on for the most part and we're starting to draw so at some point this is going to this is going to draw down the, I mean, you could see the builds that we were having based on the COVID uh, uh, demand destruction, but that's reversed itself back in June, literally. So um, you have to, you have to do analysis, you have to look at these things. And that's what gives you the, the analysis, the looking at these markets gives you that conviction. It's not just some wild speculation. Well, oil's been down, so we better buy it. It's not how we do things here. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk about this. Uh, I talked about Antero. I've been a become bullish. I made a video maybe a couple months ago on Antero Resources. It's a natural gas producer up in the uh, Marcellus Shale up there in Pennsylvania, West Virginia area. And look, this wasn't my idea. I got this off of Twitter. That's why I keep telling you guys uh, a guy named Nick Jones guy I know, another guy that I'm not going to name his name, but he goes by Contrarian888, I believe. And this is what I'm talking about, about following smart people. They kind of turned me on to this deal uh, of Antero and Antero Midstream back then and made the case for it in, you know, these extended Twitter feeds. And I said, wow, this makes some sense. I took a look at it myself and said, yeah, I agree with this analysis. I'm going to buy this. And I said that publicly um, a couple of months ago in the video. And I just wanted to bring something to light. You know, natural gas now is trading well above $3 a thousand cubic feet. It has really rallied big time. 
And the reason why is, is because it's suffering the same uh, situation that uh, shale oil is. The price was down for so long and so much overproduction happened that a lot of the companies were financially impaired. You know, drilling for the sake of drilling is not a good business practice. And that's what was happening. And so now companies are capital constrained. People are cutting back on their production. Demand is coming back now. LNG exports are picking up. And what we're starting to see is um, a, lot of the, a lot of the overhang being worked off. A lot of the um, you know, demand is up, but yet supply is being constricted again. And why? Because of availability of capital. Because the mindset has changed at a lot of these companies because it had to change. Okay, and one thing I liked about Intero is this is a company that a lot of people thought were going to, was going to go bankrupt. And they, they have really done a good job managing their debt, managing the situation at the company such that um, they, I believe, are, one of the, are going to come out of this and do fairly well. And I think extremely well over what I consider, you know, what this gas has turned around. And yes, gas, natural gas is very volatile. These stocks... Uh, these natural gas stocks can move 10, 15% a day just based on what the natural gas price does. So know that going in, but I think longer term, we're seeing something here. And I wanted to point this slide out that I got off the uh, transcript of the recent Antero um, earnings call. And so we have an analyst, uh, this Neil Dingman asked, he goes, okay, and just one follow-up, just wondering, given the large amount of hedges, you'll have some nice hedges. Uh, if I'm just wondering, would y'all consider ramping activity next year? Talking about 21, because Antero's actually got a lot of their production hedged around 270 and change uh, into next year. Uh, they were actually doing fairly well when gas prices were well below that. Uh, but that's the question. If you have all these hedges on, uh, you got a lot of production hedged for 20 and then 21. If prices are up now, will you guys ramp the drilling? That's what the question is. And so if gas prices remain strong like this in order to take advantage of these higher prices, or with that, would the higher prices change your kind of growth or that strategy next year at all? Thank you. And this is what I like to hear. This is Paul Rady, the CEO of the company. Neil, we're completely focused on generating free cash flow. Where have we heard that before? That's what's going on. We're hearing that from all the managements in the shale oil industry also. So I would expect us to announce, this is not been board approved yet, but maintenance level capital for next year and maximize free cash flow to redu reduce that leverage. Our plan over the longer term is, term is to reduce our debt by at least another, he's talking about, it says million here, but it's billion dollars and get it down to under 2 billion total debt and leverage, approximately under two times. Okay. So what I'm trying to tell you is, is that supplies being constricted the drill, drill, drill just for the sake of drilling so I can have my stock options exercised or my compensation based on production, that's going away. And now we've talked about this in oil, now we're seeing it in gas and the gas price is already responding, okay? It's up tremendously. And a lot of these stocks are up tremendously. These stocks have outperformed the general market considerably. And the expectation is, is that, you know, we may be entering a new bull market in natural gas. I mean, we're going to enter a new bull market in all these commodities. They're just going to start and stop at different times, but it's going to happen over the next five, 10 years. Okay. And that's why I'm saying you have to be positioned. 
And uh, this is the kind of company, this is the kind of setup we're looking for. This is the kind of language we want to hear. Okay, this is music to our ears. We're not just going to take the excess cash flow and then run out and get a bunch of drilling rigs running. Now, I, inevitably, that will happen. That's what will kill this bull market. Inevitably, that's what these guys are in the business of doing, drilling for natural gas. At some point, people, the price will get high enough where they will not be able to help themselves. They'll go in, all kinds of capital will come in, and then the gas price will collapse again. Or you could have a really warm winter and supply gets overwhelms demand, and you could have the price collapse. So what I'm trying to tell you is it's volatile, but it looks like you know, when we see things like this, this is the, what we want to see to maintain our bullish uh, view on uh, gas. And I just wanted to update because I made a video on this. There's been a lot of good news. I'll probably make a more extended video on Ontario uh, for my public uh, followers. This isn't in the newsletter, but this is the kind of thought process we go through. And this is the kind of company we're looking for. And it goes back to what I've said before, finding people that are smarter than you okay, that have demonstrated that they know what they're talking about. And then, you know, you can't think every idea up. And if somebody comes up with a good idea, and that's why I advocate really following smart people on Twitter. I'm not talking about cat videos or getting involved in political discussions. There's a lot of smart analysts out there, a lot of guys that do a lot of work, and they're free with it. They just put it up. And you can, you know, DM, or you can talk back and forth. They're, they're happy to talk about these things. And you identify these people, and you're getting ideas. This, people ask me, how do I get my ideas? This is one of the ways I get an idea, by following people that are smarter than me. And then saying, oh, wow, man, light bulb just went off. That's a good idea. Let me take a look at this. So I just wanted to show this as an example. Okay, I want to get into this. Uh, this is the Buffett indicator uh, being actually, you know, corporate uh, or the valuation of equities to GDP. And uh, Warren Buffett has said this is like the best indicator that he likes to use. Now, a lot of people poo-poo Warren Buffett. But, you know, value and has been out of favor for a while and the stock market's running and all the high flyers. But we've seen this before, guys. This, and I'm going to talk about this in the next couple of slides. I've had people emailing me, oh, man, Shopify, all this other. I don't pay attention. I don't buy overvalued stocks. I've seen this happen before. I saw it happen in 2008 in housing and finance stocks. I saw it happen in the in the. Uh, 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 dot com. Okay, I've seen all this before. I've seen, I've studied all these. This always happens. We're overvalued and we're the most overvalued, if you look to the far right, that we've ever been. Okay. And uh, that's just crazy. Um, you go back to 2000, which, if you look on this chart, which was the dot com bubble. Okay. And that was a full-blown bubble. I lived that. That was 20 years ago. A lot of people that are listening to this video were little kids, weren't even born yet. But that was a full-blown bubble. And the euphoria, it was amazing. Justifications for the valuations were unbelievable. There were webs. This is when the web first got started, right? The internet first got started. There was websites coming up. And they were garnering massive valuations, billions of dollar valuations based on not revenue, not profits, not cash flow, but eyeballs, amount of people looking at the site. And that would get you a, you know, billions, billions of dollars um, uh, valuation. And it was nutty. I remember going on, I remember, the, I remember some of these nutty things, pets.com, drcoop.com, all kinds of weirdo 
ideas. And I remember this is when they, you know, the internet was, uh, the web was nascent then. So I remember Yahoo finance message boards, people used to go on there and I'd be like, this is crazy. And, and people would get so upset. You'd be pointing out the overvaluation and that it was a bubble. It was eventually going to burst. And they would like threaten you, you know, I'm going to come to your house and kill you. I mean, really, dude? I mean, I don't, I wasn't worried about it, but it's just like, this is, this people will, ju people can justify anything in bubbles. This is why it's so important to read about bubbles, read about psychology, understand. That's what Charlie Munger's talking about. You have to read, you have to educate yourself. You have to create a latticework of knowledge to understand these things so they make sense. Or you could just chase the shiny object. You can go against all advice and say, I'm going to chase the shiny object because I know how to trade. I'm telling you, I don't know a lot of billionaire traders that just trade. Who are these people? What we see is in investors that buy things cheap and wait for them to become dear. And, you know, we're at a record valuations to, the, to GDP in the stock market now based on the Buffett indicator. It's craziness. Does that mean it can get crazier? Absolutely. That This isn't a timing tool, but what I'm trying to tell you is the last time we've had bubbles, I mean, this has been a good indicator. And, you know, what's happening is, is that so many people are passively invested. They're just having money taken out of their paycheck. It goes into an S&P fund. S&P, the, these, these funds are based on market cap. So whoever has the biggest market cap, the ten dollar, the hundred dollars that you send in, for, it gets taken out of your paycheck and sent to Vanguard. There's nobody actively managing it, saying, you know what, this is overvalued, or let's shift some of the money over to the undervalued sector. It just goes into the top ten companies that are, or whatever, based on market cap. So if Amazon's the highest market cap company, so many much money goes on that, and it starts feeding on itself. So then it pulls in more money, and it just keeps going until it doesn't work. So what happens on the other side of that? And there's excellent interviews that have been done and a lot of work has been done about when this eventually reverses, which it will. I like this tweet by Charlie uh, Billy Lowe, however you say it. He says here, uh, Apple revenue was up 1% over the last year. So Apple's revenue, I mean, it's a mature company now. It was up 1%, but its stock is up 92% in the past year. Does anybody believe that Apple's business got better, 92% better in the last year, just based on a 1% revenue increase? This is what we're talking about, okay? You can see the heyday growth back in the day when the company was growing 70%, 80%, 30%. It grew its revenue by 1% over the last year, but yet the stock is up 92%. These are the kind of signals for overvaluation. And I don't buy overvalued stocks. Can it go up another 92%? Absolutely. We could have a melt up. I don't think it's going, it, uh, I'm not buying it. This is uh, from a letter. You know, I have, I created the investment curation site on Blogger. I'll put a link to it. This is from one of the people that I, one of the outfits I follow, Old West Financial. They're a firm out in Los Angeles. They're value type people. And they had in their recent uh, Q3 letter, um, they asked the question, have these businesses improved that much? And it kind of feeds on the previous slide. You know, they were commenting in the letter, where does the market go from here? Hard to say, but look at these eye-popping returns of certain stocks since January 1st. PayPal up 77%. Tesla up 422%. NVIDIA up 120%. 
Apple up 54%. These returns are for the first nine months of 2020. One has to ask, have these businesses improved that much in nine months or is the market forming a bubble a la 1999? In determining whether the market is in bubble territory, I love to quote a quote from legendary investor, Sir John Templeton. Quote, bull markets are born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. The returns above, in my opinion, smack of euphoria. And I agree. And remember what we said here, what, you know, Sir John Templeton, just to tell a quick story, was a famous investor. He's one of my heroes. He got his start during the depression. Um, I think he got some sum of money. I don't remember. He was a clerk or something. I don't know. He raised like he had two grand or five grand, whatever he had. And what he did was he went in and he bought, I believe, uh, some shares of every stock that was trading on the New York Stock Exchange, either below $5 or below a dollar. I can't remember. And then obviously, as the country came out of the depression, I mean, he was buying basically at the bottom. And as the country came out of the depression uh, in the 30s, a lot of these, I mean, you can look up the story on the internet, uh, but, uh, you know, he made a tremendous amount of money. And the, and the moral of the story is you buy on, bull markets are born on pessimism. You have to buy when nobody else wants to buy it. And that goes back to the previous slide I was talking about earlier in the reality check. That's hard to do. People cannot get their head around that. People are like, why do I want to buy these loser energy stocks that this guy's talking about? You know, I mean, look at these other stocks are going up. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go buy Suncor or CNQ, or I'm not going to go buy, you know, uh, any of these nuclear power, any of stocks. They're dead. They're nobody wants them. They're not going anywhere. That's the thinking that most people have, but that's how you make the big money. You have to buy things that are undervalued. You have to buy things that are out of favor, but you can't just willy nilly do it. You have to create a narrative that has to be logical and has some premise in actually being correct, i.e., do you really think oil's going away? You got everybody, you know, you got everything lined up against it. People are divesting, okay? But it's necessary for civilization. Scoring a Rosenzweig slide, I like it. I like these little tidbits of information because they're, they're, you know, they're entertaining, I guess, for people, but they also make a point. I mean, this is how bad the overvaluation is in the tech stocks and how extreme the undervaluation is in energy. So each FANG company except Netflix is now worth more than the entire energy sector within the S&P 500. Most investors essentially have no exposure to energy. I mean, this is a contrarian investor wet dream. This is it. This is what you want to see at the bottom. This is like ringing the bell. So you've got these FANG stocks, with the exception of Netflix, uh, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Alphabet, Google. Oh, I, I don't even know what they all are. But each individual one of these companies, like Facebook by itself or Apple by itself, or, you know, Google by itself is worth, its market cap is worth more than the entire energy sector in the S&P. That's Exxon. That means you could sell, say you owned all the stock in Facebook. I'm just, this is theoretical. You really couldn't do this, but I'm just using the theoretical. You could sell all of your Facebook stock, whatever the market cap is of that, and you could conceivably buy Exxon, Chevron, Shell, 
I mean, go down the line, Apache, the, all of the energy stocks in the S&P, whatever they are, you could buy them all with just the market cap of one of the FANG stocks. That is screen for a product that is necessary for modern life and civilization. People say, well, John, you're not paying attention. Electric vehicles, 14% of a barrel of oil goes for transportation, okay, or for automobile transportation. Everything around you in your, that you're in, sitting in your room listening to right now is based on petroleum products, plastics, fertilizers, uh, paints, varnishes. I mean, everything. Nylons, uh, fabrics, with the exception of you know, polyesters, whatever. Uh, you know, your, your, your Under Armour garments, all that stuff, okay? I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And, you know, people forget this. And, I mean, I think I read somewhere that somebody said, even if you look at the oil price now, the oil stocks have collapsed another 50%, even since the lows that they had during the maximum pessimism of the COVID uh, when oil dropped, you know, negative 40 stocks have dropped again, another 50%. So, I mean, a lot of these things are screaming buys at this point. I mean, there's nowhere to go but up, in my view, because you're not going to be out there committing billions of dollars. You've seen all the divestment. Banks won't loan. The zeitgeist in the, in the West now is against uh, oil and gas. It's going to be a four-letter word. And uh, that's going to create, this is creating the seeds for a massive bull market, in my view. Uh, this is another Mark Mills article. I know there's people that don't like Mark Mills because he works, for, he writes for the Manhattan Institute, which is a quote by some people that are viewers of this channel, a right-wing publication. It doesn't matter, okay? It, it, what matters is the argument. And the argument is that the Green New Deal can't break the laws of physics. And no one answers the arguments. This is why I don't, you know, I, I it, it was like last week, I did my political predictions of what I thought was going to happen. That very well may not be what I want to happen. I don't want either one of these clowns to be president. It do, but the circumstances don't care what I want. I'm telling you what I think is going to happen. If you want to argue, you should argue the facts. Instead, I get stuff like, how many subscribers did you lose with this BS? What, in the, what, 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 what argument was BS? Or every time I bring Mark Mills up and put quotes from one of his papers about how much overburden and how much ore you have to move to make an electric battery, somebody goes, the guy writes for a right-wing thing and discounts it. That is idiotic. Do not be that person. That is a non-thinking person. Doesn't matter what the guy's political beliefs are. What's the actual argument? If you can't refute the argument, then you have to consider it. Is it so hard to consider an argument that is not in line with your biases? Uh, how, uh, maybe these people are successful. I don't know. I, I'm not successful doing that. And it took me a long time to break that way of thinking. Anyways, the Green New Deal can't break the laws of physics. It goes on here in the article. These are quotes from the article, links to all of this in the show notes. And the physics of all energy sources whether wind and sun or oil and gas share the same core features. All exist in nature for free, but that's irrelevant. Thus, the invisible elephant in the room with a green, green New Deal 
whether implemented by federal or state governments, is the staggering quantity of stuff that needs to be mined in order to build all the green machines and where that mining and processing happens. That's exactly right. And this is what's going to be the heads I win, tails I win better statement right here by Mark Mills, right-wing pundit of the Manhattan Institute. Because listen, look at the dichotomy or the contrary, or the, uh, I shouldn't say dichotomy, but the um, two opposing ideas that the, that the environmentalists have. We want wind and solar power. We want batteries. We want electric vehicles. But uh, these people are not going to allow, allow mining in the United States. Or if they do, it'll be so regulated, it'll be cost prohibitive. So where do you get the materials to do this? Wish it into existence? This question has to be answered. Now, I'm counting on the environmentalists to strangle the supply of these minerals just when they're needed and force the price up. You know, they're going to mandate, you're starting to see it now, New Jersey's getting ready to pass legislation banning the sale of internal combustion cars, just like California is. You're going to see it in Europe because there's two ways to make this electrical vehicle thing happen. It's not going to happen market-based because the price is too high for the batteries. We've already established that. So they're going to force it through legislation, okay? It's going to happen. So where are you going to get the materials? We have a lot of resources in Canada, the United States. Are they going to let them mine them or are they going to throw injunctions in there? First Nations, you know, you're tearing up tribal lands, uh, environmental impact studies. You need the copper. You need the lithium. You need the nickel. Where are you going to get it? article goes on to say the 1 million electric vehicles now on U.S. roads, courtesy of billions of dollars in subsidies. This is what people don't like. It's not the facts, what Mark Mills says. They don't like these kind of statements, but it's true. Courtesy of billions of dollars in subsidies. Well, the oil and gas industry gets subsidies. Okay, let's get rid of all subsidies. I'm for that. No argument for me. Getting back to this, one the 1 million electric vehicles now on the U.S. roads account for just 0.5% of America's cars, but contain, for example, more cobalt than 1 billion smartphones. Again, where are you going to get the material? In general, fabricating a single EV battery, each of which weighs about 1,000 pounds, requires digging up roughly a half a million pounds of materials. That's more than a tenfold increase in the cumulative quantity of materials used by a standard car over its entire operating life. So this is the problem. You can't just will this stuff. You know, you just don't say, well, you know, wind power is free. Close my eyes and wish that a wind farm appears. You have to get the steel, which requires iron ore and met coal. You, know, you got to create coke and you got to create the steel. Then you have to create the cement in a kiln that's fired by natural gas. This is all very CO2 emitting, intensively emitting. Then you got to transport everything with big semis, not electric semis, diesel power. I could go on for hours, okay? It kind of goes back to Milton Friedman's, you know, I think it was Milton Friedman talking about a pencil and what all is involved with bringing a pencil to market. People don't think about these things. But like I said, it's heads, heads I win, tails I win more. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about, I saw an article, uh, Uzbekistan to privatize state-owned enterprises. Uh, 
Uh, we see this a lot sometimes in a lot of these uh, frontier markets. Um, basically, I saw an article, Uzbekistan will fully or partially privatize over 620 state-owned companies and properties to accelerate the Central Asian nation's transition to a market economy, presidential decree announced on Wednesday. Article goes on. What I'm trying to tell you is, you know, like this month's newsletter, I'm talking about a way to invest in a company like the country of Georgia, which has got uh, this particular vehicle that, that I'm recommending has been knocked down by 50% since the COVID situation. But you got a country like Georgia that's an emerging market. It's on the Black Sea. It's in the Caucasus Mountains area, south, south of Russia, near Turkey, uh, near these places. People don't even know where it's at. They can't find it on a map. But it's a country that's been growing at 5 to 6% a year for the last over the last decade. It's a country that ranks in the top 10, okay, in economic freedom in Europe, top six uh, in many, many things uh, as far as judiciary. Corruption is low. Uh, taxes are low. Corporate and individual. Uh, rule of law is high. And, you know, that's the model that's going to draw capital. You know, that's the model that's going to allow compounding of wealth. You know, you're looking at the West where we're talking about having, you know, we have the candidate that's leading in the polls right now in the U.S. talking about raising taxes, re-regulating the economy, putting more status policies. That's not a rest. Why, why is the rest of the world moving away from that? But we're moving towards that. Okay. Is incentivizing economic growth and prosperity a bad thing? Well, evidently it is in the West because we're suicidal. So what I'm trying to tell you is, is these places are where the growth is. These places are where the opportunity is. It, please think about that and avail yourself of some of these opportunities. Um, but anyway, this video has gone on long enough. I will put links to all of this uh, in the show notes. I'm trying, this was a little bit distracted, this video, I know, but uh, I was trying, to, I'm using a new recording uh software. So I don't know how it's going to turn out. So maybe I was a little bit distracted, but uh, uh, appreciate uh, the viewership, appreciate the comments and appreciate folks that uh, get some value out of this. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week.